I have been so excited over the last weeks to be uh, bringing to you the book of 1 Samuel. What a great book it's been. Uh, what's been so encouraging to me is your response. Your response in that so many of you are coming to me telling you, telling me, oh, I'm, I'm, reading, I'm reading in the chapter. I can't wait to hear what you're going to preach on in chapter 6 because they, you know what's in there. So thank you. Be in the word. That's why we do this. On Sunday morning, we get together so that we are moved to go to God's word because this is our life book. This is where, what we live by, and this is why we take the time every week to study his word. So I want to pray one more time before we, we begin our time together. So let's pray together. Lord, this morning, we don't just want to hear about you. We want to hear from you. We want to hear you speak this morning. Lord, speak through me, speak in spite of me, but speak. Our ears are listening, our hearts are listening. We are hungry for your word, so teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So little background for 1 Samuel chapter 6, and the, the scripture passage won't be up on the screen today, so if you have Bibles or if you have your devices, you can start turning to 1 Samuel chapter 6. Let me give you a little bit of background here. A few weeks ago, we saw that the Israelites came to battle against the Philistines, and they were so excited because God was on their side, and they went to battle against them, and they lost. Oh, what went wrong? What went wrong? What did we do wrong? They said, we know, we need to go back to Shiloh, pick up the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God among them, and let's bring that back to the battlefield. So they go to Shiloh, bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the battlefield. They go once again to fight the Philistines, and they lost again. And this time, the loss was even greater and worse than that, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And so we saw last week when the Philistines had that Ark of the Covenant, they thought it was a great victory. They put it in the temple of their god, Dagon, and for two days in a row, Dagon fell before the Ark of the Covenant. So they decided they need to do something with this, and before you know it, the Lord brings upon them some plagues, plagues of rodents, plagues of tumors that were devastating and actually killing the people, and a plague of confusion. What do we do? We've got this thing. It's causing these plagues. Let's send it to another Philistine city. So they sent it to Gath. Same thing happens in Gath. They sent it to Ekron. Same thing happens there. What do we do? It's been seven months. All this horrible stuff is coming on us. Is it really this Ark of the Covenant, this great trophy of victory? Is this bringing all the trouble to us? And that's where chapter six begins. So now we'll read together. I'm starting in verse one. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines for seven months. Seven months they held on to it and dealt with all of that pain and trouble. And the Philistines called the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of God, of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return it to him with a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And they said, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, 
for one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make a likeness of your tumors and a likeness of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods and your land. And now I'm skipping to verse seven. Now therefore take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and, and place it on the, on the cart and put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. Watch. If it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So you get the sense that the Philistines still aren't quite sure that it was God who brought all this trouble on them. Let's do one last experiment. We're going to hitch two nursing cows, separate them from their calves, hitch the two nursing cows to harnesses that they have never worn before, put the, attach a cart to them, and send them on their way. If they make it back to Israel, then in fact it was God who was overseeing all of this. But if not, it was just by chance all along. And we don't know, maybe they would have went and taken the cart back. So I have a story for you. Denise and I, as you know, are not farmers in any sense. We, we're not farmers. I like animals, but I like them when they're in their pens and, and doing their thing. But we love to drive around Delaware. And so one day we were driving around, it was evening, and we were driving past a cow farm, and I don't know really how we knew, but there was a cow standing by, uh, separate from all the other cows, and we realized she was about to give birth. So we stopped the car and we start videoing the whole thing, and, and lots of mooing and lots of moaning, and, and she was not happy about this, but eventually she gave birth, and it amazed me. As soon as that calf came out, she, after all the, the struggles she went through, she was up on her feet and she turned immediately to the calf and cleaned it off. And then as soon as that calf was clean, she started nudging it to get up. And you could hear her calling, get up, get up. Well, you couldn't really, but you felt that, right? You, you, were, you were rooting for her, you know, get up. The calf couldn't get up. You see, she had given birth in the middle of a mud puddle. And every time she nudged the calf, its face would go deeper into the mud. And he was suffocating. And he couldn't get his feet under him. He kept trying, but it was so slippery, he couldn't stand up. She kept nudging him and nudging him. And the situation was getting desperate. So the farmer saw what was happening, and he ran in the into the field. And immediately, you could see, Mama was not happy about that. She got between him and the calf. And, and even though she would nudge that, that calf, and he would try to come close, every time he walked close, she would charge at him. The situation was getting harder and harder. So eventually another farmer came into the cap. I didn't volunteer for this, by the way, okay? <laughs> I felt bad, but not that bad. Um, so um, another farmer came in and started distracting the mom. And finally she turned around and started charging him. And then the first farmer ran into the middle of the mud puddle, grabbed the legs, and yanked that thing out of the mud puddle. And then Denise and I drove off, and we assume he got up. But... Uh, the maternal instinct of those cows, of that cow was so strong. 
And so when you look at this experiment and you think about this, the Philistines took two mama cows away from their calves. They put them into a harness, into yokes that they had never worn before. These were unyoked cows and attached a cart to them. There is no way they were going to leave their calf calves. There was no way they were going to pull that cart. There was no way that they could go anywhere without a person steering them. There was no way that they would make their way seven miles back to Israel. It would be a coincidence if it happened. Or maybe it would be God. We're not sure. Let's read on. Verse 10. Then the men did so and took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the cart of the Lord or the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right or left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them all the way to the border of Beth Shemesh. So they're watching this experiment. Is it going to work? Is it not? Can we get this ark back, this great trophy? Well, was it chance or was it God? Well, they determined it was God. That was the experiment. If the cows made it back, then we know it was God all along. And against all odds these cows drove that ark right back into the hands of the Israelites. You know, I think every week that we have preached on 1 Samuel, we've said there's something similar about this book that was written 3,000 years ago to today's culture. And again, we have it. Because today, either God is sovereign or everything happens by chance. We either have God who is working everything for his good and oversees the affairs of humankind or it all happens by chance. And I'll tell you, when I think about this, I think, what a way to live, by chance? I mean, if God is sovereign, then he is over everything that comes into my life, the good and the bad. If God is sovereign, then he, makes, he helps me to make sense of trials. If God is sovereign, then I understand that the difficulties that come into my life are by his design, his purpose, and he's working it in me to make me to be more like him. If God is not sovereign, then it's just pain, inconvenience, and difficulty, and it's just messing up my world. By chance... If God is sovereign, he is over all of those things. You see, without God, what kind of security is there? What kind of foundation can you have without God in your life? What a way to live. No security, no foundation. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says that God will be the sure foundation for your times. You need foundation in this time? We do, and it is God. God is the only sure foundation. He is a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. So in spite of the experiment, the Philistines still said, well, they still they realized it was God, but they still didn't turn to God. You see, they could have even at this point repented and gone into relationship with God, but they didn't. They maybe feared him a little more, but they didn't turn their hearts to him. 
Rather than embrace God, they said, get rid of him. Send it away. His glory is too much for us. We can't handle it. Get rid of this God. We don't need him here. And so the ark makes its way back to Israel. And I just, I love the line that says, the cows didn't turn to the right or the left. But before that, there's the the line, the cows were lowing the whole way. I called up Tim Eber. I was like, Tim, when a cow moves, is it happy or is it complaining? He said, both. This morning I asked Lowell, when a cow is mooing, is it happy or is it complaining? He said, both. So we don't know if these cows were happy about going on their way or if they were complaining. Our calves are back there, but somehow we're making our way. One way or the other, they stayed straight. And the Bible says they didn't turn to the right or the left. And I can't help but wonder if the author put that in there as a reminder that even cows can go straight and not turn to the right or to the left, why not the Israelites? Why not us? Oh, that we, that we would be a people who are going straightway to meet with God and not be distracted by what's over here or what's over here, and stay straight. Stay on the path, faithfully following God and his leading. Have any of you heard about the revival that is going on that started at Asbury College? Have you heard about that? It's amazing. There's a revival going on on college campuses. It started with Asbury and it's spreading to other college campuses now. And this isn't a big emotional revival. This is a quiet stirring of the Lord in the hearts of Christian young people. And it's happening in our nation. What's fascinating to me is that, you know, revival starts with believers. We always think revival means a lot of people are gonna turn to the Lord. Revival is Christians being revived getting, putting aside the distractions that are left and right and getting straight again with God. Two Wednesdays from now, not this coming Wednesday, but the next Wednesday, March 1st, we're gonna have a special prayer meeting asking God for revival here. I'm gonna invite you out on March 1st at 6.30 to come to our, our main room in the, in, the, uh, in the CE building and we're gonna have a special time. I'm calling it, Why Not Us? Prayer for Revival. Why not us? How about it? Do we need revival here? Absolutely. We need revival right here in this church. The church in America needs revival. So I'm inviting you out. I'm asking you to put that on your calendar. Shut your Bibles for a second. Write it on your calendar. March 1, 6.30, be here so we can pray together as a body of believers for the revival of our spirit, that the Holy Spirit would move in us in a powerful way Be here that night. Join prayer meeting that night, March 1st. I hope you will be there. You'll hear about it again next week. Okay, so let's get back to the passage. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. That means it was probably late May, early June. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua, the Beshemite, and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was in it, and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them in the large stone. 
And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. Poor cows. I, I feel bad for those. They were so faithful. Straightway, they didn't turn to the right or left. They get there, and what happens to them? They were sacrificed. But what really stands out to me, do you know in all of the Old Testament, there is no place that the Lord indicates that a cow should be sacrificed, only a bull. Never is a cow to be sacrificed. But they sacrificed these two cows. Well, why wasn't this a problem for God? Because he saw their heart. You see, their heart, they were rejoicing. Look, the Ark of the Covenant is back in our land. We're out in the fields. There's no animals here. Let's make a sacrifice to God and please him with this sacrifice. God didn't care that it wasn't a bull but a cow. Instead, God saw their heart of thanksgiving, their heart of, of wanting to please him. And they sacrificed those cows and he received that sacrifice from these people. But some among them, had some trouble coming to them. And we'll pick this up in verse 19. He, God, struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark. He struck down, all of, he, uh, he struck down of all the people 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Wow. We come to a difficult part of the passage. Men were killed because of their disrespect. Now, I want to just bring to your attention, there's a little discrepancy here between the numbers. Some of your translations probably say 70, correct? And some say 50,070. Here's why. The way the wording reads, it reads this way in the original. It says that um, out, of, out of all the people, 70, 50,000 men were struck down. So, some commentators or some translators say out of all the people, 50,070 men, or out of all the people, 70 out of 50,000 men were struck down. Whatever it is, the point is that men were struck down because of their disrespect of the Lord. We can understand their curiosity. Think about this. The Israelites, most of them had never seen the Ark of the Covenant before. The Ark of the Covenant is usually stored away in what's called the Holy of Holies. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But for right now, it's usually hidden. Usually only the priest gets to see that once a year. And now here it was in their backyard. And they had heard that inside the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the law and was a jar of manna from the wilderness from about 450 years years before that, and was, was Aaron's uh, walking stick that had budded. They were curious. Let's see what this looks like. They go to open up the ark, and 70 of them are killed because of their disrespect. Now, they were killed because they knew the law. God had set the law for the, for the Israelites that no one was to touch the ark. No one was to look inside the ark. Never. But they disrespected, disregarded him and did what they want. Now, I ask the question, so during the seven months that the Philistines had the ark, do we really think they treated the ark respectfully? Probably not. Did they touch it? The Bible doesn't say, but... We don't know, but it, it's likely they were not treating the Ark of the Covenant, 
the way it was written to be treated in the Old Testament. But you see, they didn't have the law and God knew that. They didn't have Levitical priests and God knew that. But Israel did and they should have known. But they disregarded what God said and did what they wanted anyway. See, the ark was never to be touched. And when it traveled, it was always to be covered. They had the law and they didn't follow it. So we pick up in verse 20. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from, from uh, I'm sorry, and to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long for it was 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Do you understand that the people of Beth Shemesh responded to, the, to what happened the same way the Philistines did? Get rid of it. Too much glory. Get rid of it. We don't want it here. Hey, you guys from Kirith Jerem, we're not even taking it to you. You come and get it. We're not touching this thing. Right? That's, they responded the same way. And so the ark went up to Kirith Jerem and remained there. So for the remainder of our time together, I want to focus on three questions that were asked in this text. The first one is in verse two. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? You know, having a wife is a great thing. Wives keep you straight, don't they? They're just always letting you know you know, so Denise said to me, she said, you know, for three weeks you've talked about the Ark of the Covenant, but I still don't know what it is exactly. And I said, well, that's because you haven't been listening so well. She said, no, it's because you haven't explained it so well. So here's my last chance. Are you ready? The Ark of the Covenant. Way back, way back when Israel was released from Egypt, when God restored them out of slavery and brought them into the wilderness, they were headed for the promised land. They rebelled against God, spent 40 years there, but God at that time made a covenant with them. He made them into a nation for the first time. And at that time, he gave them all the instructions on how he was supposed to be worshiped. Part of that instructions was instructions about the tabernacle, which was a, a temporary place that was set up. It was basically a glorified tent uh, that was set up for the people to go and worship. And in this tent was this Ark of the Covenant. He instructed them to build a wooden box that was covered in gold. And we talked about how the top of the box had cherubim on there. Uh, and this was, they were all gold. And the top of the box was called the mercy seat. Now, this box was held in the Holy of Holies. The way the tabernacle was set up, if you think of maybe like concentric circles, sort of. So the, the widest part was the court of the Gentiles and then the court of women. And then you step into the, the, the holy place and then inside of that is the Holy of Holies. That was separated from the rest of the temple with a very thick curtain. And the, the Ark of the Covenant sat in there and nobody went into that room except for once a year. 
the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrifice. He would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. He would confess his sins from the past year and the sins of all of Israel for the past year and God would forgive and fellowship would be restored between this holy God and the people of Israel. You know, the Israelites took this so seriously that when the priest would go in there, they were, def- they were afraid he would have a heart attack and die. And then what do we do? We can't go in there and get his body. So they would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he fell over after meeting with God, they could pull him out. That's how seriously they took this. So the Ark of the Covenant traveled around in the wilderness, but how does it travel if you can't touch it? Well, it was made with two big rings on both sides of it, and through those rings were permanent poles. And these poles were allowed to be touched by the priests. So if we had to move the Ark of the Covenant, priests would get on either side of it and pick up the poles and then walk with it. And this is how it traveled around in the wilderness. This is how it was brought into the promised land. And this is how it came to Shiloh and was at Shiloh in the tabernacle. And at this point, the tabernacle has a little bit more permanent structure to it. Eventually though, David would become king and he would take the the ark and he would bring it to Jerusalem, the capital city. And then his son Solomon would build a more permanent temple, which was set up very similarly to the tabernacle, still had all the different areas, including the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and the practice still remained once a year. They would go to God for forgiveness. Now, the problem with this is that soon after that, the Ark of the Covenant drops out of the narrative, And we don't know what happened to it, hence Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? But that's not true. We know that's not true, right? We really don't know what happened to it. Before the Babylonians came in to decimate Israel, was it buried? It may have been. Was it burned and destroyed when they came in? We really just don't know. There are some rabbis who believe that the the Ark of the Covenant is buried under the... uh, Uh, under the Temple Mount, but we can't get to it because there's the Muslim Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount right now. And so they believe that when the Messiah comes, that he will make all things right and find the Ark of the Covenant. There's a group of Christians in Africa who believe that the Ark of the Covenant is buried somewhere in Egypt or somewhere in Ethiopia. And they believe at some point it will be discovered. But here's the point. We don't need the Ark anymore. We don't need the Ark. That's why it's gone. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant. Why don't we need it? Because the Ark of the Covenant was God's presence among man. Well, God is present with us now because Jesus came. Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is our Ark of the Covenant. It is through Jesus that we meet with God now. You know, all through history, The Jews were going into the Holy of Holies in order to meet with God. But through Jesus, God came to us. He came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, became the sacrifice for sins. And not just the sins of the year, but the sins of all time. His sacrifice is sufficient to cover all sins. And because Jesus sacrificed himself, all those who receive him by faith 
What I mean is that you don't just believe that Jesus existed, but that you believe and have put your trust in him for forgiveness of sins. If you do that, then actually you become the temple of God, the place where God meets with you. The earthly temple is no longer needed. God does not dwell only with us. He dwells in us. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, if God is concerned about the way the Ark of the Covenant was handled, don't you think he's even more concerned about the way his son is handled by us? I think he is. You see, this question of what we decide about his son is the most important question you can ask yourself. When Jesus died, he opened the way to God. The barrier that that stood between the Holy of Holies and everybody else was torn in two. And his blood, it was sprinkled, that was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. It's now Jesus' blood that speaks for us. If you respond to God by believing, by trusting that his sacrifice paid the penalty for your sin, then you can give him the glory he deserves. But if you reject God, you remain in the state of condemnation that your sins have you in already. You see, that's just how we are until God changes us. We are all naturally condemned, but God has given us a way out. And that way out is by trusting and believing in him that he paid the sacrifice for our sins. He removes our guilt which leads us to the second question. The second question is, what shall be the gift offering which we shall return to him? And this is found in verse four. So this was asked by the Philistines. You know, the Philistines had a sense of their guilt. They knew they offended God. But instead of going to God, they came up with their own way, and it's almost comical. I mean, think about it. Think about them making these sculptures, these, these models of their tumors. I, I can't even imagine what that looks like. And, and models of rats, and bring it to God as if that would please God. It really is almost funny when you think about that. And throughout history, humanity has done that, though. How can we appease our, our God? How can we relieve ourselves of the guilt? If they had sought God's advice, what they would have heard was this. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed the Lord is better than the fat of rams. Jesus himself said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts their hearts. You see, God wants our hearts. If we learn anything from the book of 1 Samuel that we will be in for a few more months yet, it's that God wants your heart. He deserves obedience. He deserves glory. He deserves to be honored, but he wants your heart behind all those things. See, we can do those things without heart. It means nothing to him. He wants your heart. God loves you so much that he became the guilt offering that you and I could never have had or never provide for ourselves. He himself became the guilt offering and only Jesus can take away guilt. See, I can't do enough works. I can't sacrifice enough animals. I can't even sacrifice my firstborn son. 
though all of those things are like golden tumors to God, meaningless if my heart's not there. The Bible says he gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and here it is to purify us, a people of his own possession. Purify us from the guilt. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our consciences? You know, Christians are guilty people, right? I think, sometimes I think, what's wrong with us? Our guilt has been taken away. But I know so many Christians that are guilty. I think if I wasn't a Christian and I saw this group of people, not just this group, but just, you know, Christians in general, I would think they live under condemnation, the heavy finger pointing at them, you did it, you did it, you're wrong. Shame on us. We've been relieved from guilt. Do you realize, Christian, that when you sin, God no longer thinks about you with wrath? When you sin, he forgives because you're his child. Oh, can we walk around like that instead of our our heads hanging in shame? If you have sinned, deal with it before the Lord. Stop coming up with other ways, with, with golden rats and golden tumors to deal with your sin. He figured out the way for us. That way is Jesus Christ, his son, and his sacrifice on the cross. So beautiful. He himself is the ransom for us. So sin no longer stands between you and God, which brings us to our third question, which is in verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Well, I can tell you who can't stand before this holy God. Dagon couldn't, right? The Philistines weren't able to. The people from Beth Shemesh weren't able to. And then Romans tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that means even you and I cannot stand before this holy God. God's holiness is so bright, so beautiful, so clean, so pure, that nothing undefiled could go near it without being consumed by his glory. But do you remember back on our first introductory sermon about 1 Samuel, I said we would see Jesus on every page? Here he is again. You see, Jesus is the one who can stand before God. He stands before God because he lived a perfectly righteous life and sacrificed himself for perfectly unrighteous people. And the book of Revelation says, because he sacrificed himself and became the lamb sacrificed to God, he is worthy to stand before the Lord. And even when when the, uh, uh, the servant Stephen was being martyred in the book of Acts, Acts chapter six, he was dying, about to die, and it said that he saw the glory of the Lord and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is the lamb who was sacrificed and he stands before God. And he's standing there because he still has work to do. And that work is that he is interceding for you and me. And because he's interceding for you and me, now you and I get to stand before this holy God. What? You and I get to stand before this holy God? The New Testament writer says, we can stand in the presence of God's glory, blameless and with joy. Blameless? Blameless, is that really true? 
You see, Jesus removed our sin. He removed the guilt. He removed the blame and the shame. And because of that, we can stand before God with the greatest joy, the joy of knowing that God paid the penalty for our sins. Oh, we can stand before this God. Now, I want to just, just jump back for one second. When we see God's holiness, that he would that he would kill 70 men, take the lives of 70 men because they disrespected him. We can get concerned about the character of God, but I want you to hear what God says. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. You hear that? God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Instead, he calls each one of us to repent and live. You see, we all of us are condemned before God, except for what Jesus has done for us. When we put our trust in Jesus, that condemnation is lifted from us, and now we are able to stand in front of God, before God, by faith. And here it is, God's heart's desire is that he would be the desire of your heart. Have you made God the desire of of your heart. Final verse here from Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that just means made right by faith, we have peace with God, peace with this holy God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, by believing in Jesus, into this grace in which we now stand. Brothers and sisters, we stand before this holy God. I'm going to ask you to stand now, and we're going to sing a song. And Stephen, I think you're going to explain a little bit about what this song is and why we're singing it. So this is a a, a hymn called My Jesus, I Love Thee. And in this hymn, I, I asked Pastor Ross... What, what is his favorite hymn? And he said, this one. <laughs> My Jesus, I love thee. And it just goes along so well with the message this morning. So let's sing together. My Jesus, I love thee. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the
thought we were singing more verses of that one. <laughs> uh, all right. I want to close with a, uh, a benediction, and then we're going to pray. Part of our prayer will be the prayer for the food at the fellowship in the gym. So if you're heading to the gym to celebrate with Pastor Russ, food's been blessed. You can start eating right away as you go down there. But listen to this great to this great benediction. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the presence, and in the present, and beyond all time. Amen. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your glory. Thank you that you, you have enabled us to come to you, stand before you, receive your forgiveness, receive new life in Christ, and live in great joy. Oh, Lord, help us to live in that joy now. Father, thank you for the celebration we're about to take and enjoy, and we just thank you for the great food that has been provided. May it be rich to our souls and to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us this morning.